Isaiah chapter 13. Today there are nearly 6 billion people on planet earth. But I've read that there have been 77 billion people on the planet since Adam and Eve. And it is sobering to realize that every one of those 77 billion people will stand one day at the judgment seat of God. I've heard it said in the choir of life, it's easy to fake the words, but someday each of us will have to sing solo before God. Judgment day will come for all of us. In Revelation chapter 20, God judges the lost. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, Christ judges his own. In Revelation chapter 2 and 3, we learn that not only are individuals judged, but likewise are churches judged. And here in Isaiah 13 through 35, we discover that God also judges nations. Isaiah records God's judgment on the nations that were surrounding the southern kingdom of Judah. There is a principle that is applicable to tonight's chapters that I want to talk about briefly. It's known as the principle of dual fulfillment. You see, often in the Old Testament prophecies, the scope of the prediction will transcend the situation at hand and will actually relate to future events. Sometimes the events won't occur until later. Other times, not even until the last days will they occur, before the second coming of Jesus. In his book on the Old Testament, Philip Yancey comments on this principle. He writes, The prophets do not bother telling us whether the predicted events, invasions, earthquakes, a coming leader, a recreated earth, will occur next day, a thousand years later, or 3,000 years later. In fact, near and distant predictions often appear in the same paragraph, blurring together. To understand how the prophet saw future events, imagine yourself lying on your back underneath a tall oak tree. You look up and you see the limbs above you, but you have very little depth perception from your angle. Limbs that are actually separated by dozens of feet look as if they're on top of each other. And this is why Isaiah, when he looked into the future, often would speak of immediate happenings and future happenings in the very same passage, almost in the very same sentence. This is the way Isaiah saw the future. He intermixed events that came to pass immediately with events that wouldn't occur for thousands of years. It reminds me of the new bartender who moved into the Wild West town. And his predecessor told him, he said, If Big John ever comes to town, run for your life. He is the meanest, ugliest, nastiest man west of the Mississippi River. Beware of Big John. Well, the bartender filed that little bit of information away. Years later, though, a cowpoke came running into the bar one day and he came screaming, Big John's are coming. Big John's are coming. Everybody get out of town. And certainly the townsfolks, they heeded the advice. They all scattered like a covey of quail. The bartender did too, but he was just a little too late. And as he started out the door of the saloon, a man walked through the doorway. This man was the biggest, meanest, burliest man he had ever seen. This man wore a black hat. He came in riding on the back of a buffalo. In his hand was a rattlesnake that he cracked like a whip. After knocking over a few tables and slamming his hand down on the bar, breaking it in two, he asked for a bottle of sarsaparilla. Well, when the bartender handed him the bottle, of course he reached over and he just bit off the neck of the bottle, spit it out onto the floor, down the bottle of sarsaparilla in one guzzle. And that's when the bartender, he's quivering. He said, sir, do you want another drink? But the fellow said, no, I don't have time. Haven't you heard? Big John's are coming. You see, the burly man on the buffalo was a foreshadowing, a type of a bigger bully who was on the horizon. At the time, he looked tough, but he was just a foreshadowing. 
And this is what we encounter in many Old Testament prophecies. The prophet's message has a dual fulfillment. There's an immediate answer. The man on the back of the buffalo. But that immediate answer foreshadows a later, larger fulfillment yet to come, old big John. That little bit of insight will help us as we decipher and work through tonight's passage. Isaiah chapter 13 verse 1 opens, The burden against Babylon which Isaiah the son of Amos saw. Now the headquarters of God's kingdom on earth has always been Jerusalem, whereas the capital of Satan's kingdom is a city called Babylon. In the ancient world, Babylon was the center for astrology and the occult and paganism. You remember the Tower of Babel was the focal point of man's first organized revolt against God. God had to come down and break up the rebellion by confusing the languages. And yet, even after God's judgment of Babylon, the city remained a hotbed for false religion. It eventually reached its zenith around the late part of the 6th century B.C. under the reign of a king named Nebuchadnezzar. This king conquered the Jews in Judah in 605 B.C. Two of Babylon's features exemplified its magnificence. One was its famous hanging gardens. The Greek historian Herodotus said that the hanging gardens of Babylon were one of the seven wonders of the world. The other evidence of Babylon's strength were the walls that surrounded the city. The city was fortified with a double wall. It was 311 feet high by 87 feet thick. You could drive 11 chariots abreast on top of the wall. The Euphrates River flowed under the walls to provide the city water. The fall of Babylon came in the year 539 B.C. The Medo-Persian army had surrounded the city, and it looked like a long siege until General Ugaburu. I like that name. Ugaburu. Say it with me. Ugaburu. <laughs> he had a plan. See, a crew of his men went downstream, and they temporarily diverted the river. This allowed his army to enter Babylon, not by going over the walls, but by coming under the walls. The tactic surprised the Babylonians, and the city was taken by the Medes and the Persians without firing a single shot. All this was predicted, incidentally, by the prophet Jeremiah years before, about 50 years before, and you can read about it in Jeremiah 51, verses 36 through 40. Now, Isaiah wrote about the fall of Babylon 120 years before the Medo-Persian conquest. And the striking thing about his prophecy concerning Babylon here in chapters 13 and 14 is not so much its similarity to the historical victory, but its dissimilarity. And it's because of that many Bible scholars see Isaiah's prediction here as something yet future. Isaiah 13 and 14 depicts the fall of a future rebuilt Babylon. Notice the dissimilarities between Isaiah's prophecies and the historical battle. Verses 4 and 5 speak of many nations rising up against Babylon, not just the Medes and the Persians. Verse 6 ties the fall of Babylon to the day of the Lord. And that's a biblical phrase used for the time just before the second coming of Christ. Verse 10 says the judgment will include astronomical anomalies. That didn't occur when the Medes and the Persians conquered Babylon. Verse 11 tells us that the whole world will be punished in the process. Verse 13 tells us that God will shake the heavens and the earth will be moved out of her place. Verse 19 tells us that Babylon will be destroyed as Sodom and Gomorrah, apparently consumed in an instant. What I'm saying is that none of these predictions had their fulfillment in the historical fall of Babylon back in 539 B.C. <clears throat> Verses 20 through 22 depict Babylon as a city that will never be re-inhabited, a fact that was also not true of ancient Babylon. You see, after being conquered by the Medes and the Persians, the city remained vital for centuries, 200 years later. In fact, Alexander the Great made the city his capital. 
I believe Isaiah's prophecy necessitates a future fulfillment. And that is why Saddam Hussein's reconstruction of Babylon has attracted so much interest from Bible scholars. You see, 62 miles south of Baghdad, Hussein and the Iraqis have spent millions of dollars now rebuilding this ancient city. They've rebuilt Nebuchadnezzar's palace. They've rebuilt the Marduk gates. They've rebuilt a lot of the features of ancient Babylon. Saddam, in fact, styles himself as the next Nebuchadnezzar. And he is building Babylon as a memorial to his reputation. Now, granted, today, this new Babylon is not much more than a curiosity. But who knows what the future holds with the dollars, the petrodollars that flow from Mideast oil. Babylon could rise from the ashes and be a great city again. I believe that a literal destruction of Babylon, as described by Isaiah, may be a part of the end time scenario. Also remember Revelation 17 and 18. There John speaks of a commercial and a religious system seated in the city of Rome. And you remember what he called it. He too called it Babylon. The Antichrist will use this system to tyrannize the world. And it could be that the destruction described here in Isaiah 13 finds its fulfillment in the fall of the Antichrist's European confederacy. One thing is certain, the total fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy is still yet future. Chapter 14 focuses on the king of Babylon at the time of the city's fall. Ultimately, though, the person in view here is not Belshazzar, ancient Babylon's last monarch, nor is it even a future character like Saddam Hussein or like the Antichrist, the real king of Babylon, the driving force behind the world's false religion and rebellion against God, the author of this paganism and occultism is none other, of course, than Satan himself. And Satan's judgment is described for us really in ominous terms in chapter 14, verse 9. Read with me. Hell from beneath is excited about you to meet you at your coming. What a thought. Everyone the devil has deceived throughout the centuries Everyone the devil has led into hell will one day meet him there when he arrives. What a reunion that's going to be. Revelation 20 tells us that at the end of the great tribulation, Satan will be bound in hell for a thousand years. And when that day comes, hell's inmates will look at the list of new arrivals and they'll see Satan on the schedule and they'll get excited. They'll finally get their opportunity to vent their anger and to take out their frustrations on the one who deceived them and the one who drugged them there. Verse 10 records their taunts. Have you also become as weak as we? Have you become like us? Your pomp is brought down to Sheol and the sound of your stringed instruments the maggot is spread under you and worms cover you. My wife's favorite expression for disgust is gag a maggot. You ever heard that? Gag a maggot? And that's pretty disgusting when it gags a maggot. And here Satan is going to be covered with worms and maggots. Now, in light of Satan's demise... God takes us on a flashback. He recounts Satan's former glory and how far he has fallen. Verse 12 tells us, How you are fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning. You see, Satan didn't begin as the epitome of evil. Ezekiel 28 verse 14 says that he was once an anointed cherub. He was angel Lucifer. And he had a vital role in the worship of God. He was the anointed cherub, a special angel. Ezekiel calls him the seal of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You see, we're wrong to think of Satan as some slimy creature in a red suit with pointed ears and a tail and horns. You see, he's a creature of glamour. 
He can come to us today in the most attractive forms. He's the gorgeous blonde in the string bikini. He's the hip professor with the cool-sounding heresies. Beware. Paul refers to Satan as an angel of light. One day, hell will get excited. They'll get the opportunity to greet the devil. And they'll greet him with these words, how you are cut down to the ground, you who weaken the nations. At that time, Satan will be the weak one. Isaiah goes back to the beginning. The angel Lucifer's colossal mistake. He says in verses 13 through 15, For you have said in your heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will also sit on the mount of the congregation on the farthest sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the Most High. Here are the five I wills of Satan. Pride entered his heart. Remember the middle letter in the word sin. It's I. Satan's demise, his downfall was, I will, I will, I will. He exalted himself above God. And yet God tells him in verse 15, Yet you shall be brought down to Sheol to the lowest depths of the pit. Jesus sentenced Satan on the cross And when he returns, he's going to lock up the devil in hell. Verses 16 and 17 speak of Satan. Those who see you will gaze at you and consider you saying, Is this the man who made the earth tremble, who shook the kingdoms, who made the world as a wilderness and destroyed its cities? You see, when Satan is finally forced out of the shadowy recesses in which he works into the light of day, we will be astonished. We'll be amazed that such a puny little punk could have wreaked so much havoc. He was a defeated foe all along. His bark was so much bigger than his bite. And we will be astonished. We'll have great regret that we allowed him to work his mischief all because of our fears and our doubts and our lack of faith. We had nothing to fear in the first place. And we'll realize it then. Now, at the end of chapter 14, two kings are judged, the Assyrian and the Philistine. The Assyrians invaded Judah in Isaiah's day. And in verses 24 and 25, God predicts Judah's deliverance. It says, The Lord of hosts has sworn, saying, Surely as I have thought, so it shall come to pass, and as I have proposed, so it shall stand, that I will break the Assyrian in my land, and on my mountains tread him underfoot. And that's exactly what God did. Chapter 7 through 9 described how Emmanuel who we identified as the pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus, the messenger of the Lord, came in a single night and slew 185,000 Assyrians who were camped against Jerusalem. Here again, though, is where we can think longer term. Many Bible teachers see the reference to the Assyrian as the bully on the back of the buffalo, the real big John, will be the future leader or the Antichrist who will ally the armies of the world to fight against Jerusalem. Chapter 14 closes with a warning for the Philistines. Since they were west of Judah, Emmanuel's destruction of the Assyrians saved them as well as Judah. That they were not to get the big head for another nation would follow who would bring judgment against them. And Isaiah says in verse 29, out of the serpent's roots will come forth a a viper. And in verse 31, he says, a smoke will come from the north. The Philistines were saved from the Assyrians, but not from the Babylonians. They would come into the land a hundred years later and bring judgment against the Philistines. Now, in Isaiah 15 and 16, God judges Moab, a nation that lived east of the Dead Sea. Understand, the Moabites were Judah's relatives. They were descendants of Abraham's nephew, Lot. God loved Moab. And all along, he wanted Moab to join ranks with Judah and worship him in truth. 
But Moab was swayed by pagan influences and ended up worshiping idols for much of her history. You see, Moab is like, is like the person today who is surrounded by the truth. They have Christian relatives. They have believing friends. They have people who care about them. They have parents who are believers. But they refuse to embrace Jesus for themselves. It's tragic. And what eventually will happen to that person is what happened to Moab. God will bring judgment upon their unbelieving heart. Verse 2 mentions the city of Debon, the site of one of the world's most famous archaeological discoveries. Several decades ago, the Moabite stone was discovered in Debon. It, it was an incredible discovery. On this stone, there were the names of many of the places found in Scripture. And the discovery of this stone did much to confirm the Bible's historical accuracy and authenticity. Speaking of archaeology, if you're a single woman, you might want to consider marrying an archaeologist. And here's the advantage to that. The older you get, the more interested they become in you. So it's always good to think about marrying an archaeologist. Isaiah 16 begins with a prophecy that also has future implications. A scenario is drawn where Moab becomes the protector of God's people, the Jews. And God says in verse 4, Let my outcasts dwell with you, O Moab. In verse 1, the Jews send a peace offering from Selah to Mount Zion in Jerusalem and to the ruler who has invaded the land. Selah is another name for the city of Petra or what we'll call Basra. And most of you have seen the city of Petra, whether you realized it or not. How many of you watched the movie Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade? You saw the city of Petra. That cave that supposedly held the grail was the rock facade of the city of Petra. It is today in the country of Jordan. Now, in Revelation 12, we're told that when the Antichrist invades Israel and sets up his throne in the temple in Jerusalem, the Jews will flee into the wilderness. And I believe that Isaiah 16 tells us where they'll flee. They will flee to Selah or to the rock city of Petra where they will send this offering to the invader back in Jerusalem. The topography of Petra makes it easy to defend against invading armies. And it's this prophecy that caused a group of Christian businessmen years ago to take and put gospel tracts and dried preserves in the caves there in Petra for the Jews who will eventually flee there and escape from the Antichrist. Verse 6 pinpoints Moab's problem. We have heard of the pride of Moab. He is very proud. In fulfillment of the last verse in chapter 16, three years after Isaiah penned this prophecy, the Assyrians stormed the land and destroyed Moab, and it was all because of Moab's pride. Let him who thinketh he stand take heed lest he fall. Beware of pride. Several cities in the world lay claim to being the oldest. Jericho is one. But another city that is very old is Damascus. And Isaiah 17, verse 1 says of Damascus, Behold, Damascus will cease from being a city, and it will be a ruinous heap. On many occasions throughout history, Damascus has been destroyed, only to rise again out of the ashes. Even today, Damascus is a thriving city. It's the capital of Syria. And that's why the fulfillment of Isaiah 17 is still future. It predicts the ultimate destruction one day of the city of Damascus. In my Bible, chapter 18 has the man-made heading, Proclamation Against Ethiopia. But that may or may not be accurate, for verse 1 says the focus is a land beyond the rivers of Ethiopia. That could just be a way of saying a distant land. 
Verse 1 also calls it the land shadowed with buzzing things. Either a land full of mosquitoes, (laughs) bugs and birds, or it could be a figurative way of referring to modern aviation. Buzzing things. Verse 2 further identifies these people, which sends ambassadors by sea, even in vessels of reeds on the waters. Now, if you'll look at a map, you'll notice that Ethiopia is accessible by land. You can get from Israel to Ethiopia, you know, across dry land. So why do the ambassadors come from the sea if they're coming from Ethiopia, literally? You remember in Acts chapter 8, the Ethiopian drove his chariot to Jerusalem. He continues, go swift messengers to a nation tall and smooth of skin, to a people terrible from their beginning onward, a nation powerful and treading down whose land the rivers divide. Maybe a way of saying on the other side of the ocean. Maybe. Notice too, verse 3 says that the whole world takes notice whenever this nation makes a move. I don't think that has ever been the case with the country of Ethiopia. It is sheer conjecture. This is not Isaiah. This is Isaiah. But some people see the United States here in Isaiah chapter 18. You read it. You pray about it. You see if you agree. Isaiah 19 is God's judgment against an idolatrous Egypt. And the first four verses depict the internal fighting that made Egypt easy pickings for the Assyrian army. Verses 5 through 11 may have a more modern fulfillment. It predicts the demise of the Nile River. The river will turn foul. The fish will die. The ground made fertile by its overflowing banks will wither. Disaster will strike the Nile River. The Aswan Dam was built by Soviet engineers back in the 1960s. And the idea at the time was to use the Nile River to generate electricity. But what was at first hailed an engineering wonder became an ecological disaster. The dam ended up blocking volumes of silt that once filled the Nile. And it was discovered after the fact that it was the silt that fed the fish and that fertilized the surrounding soil and that blocked the salt water from the Nile where it emptied out into the ocean, the salt water from backing up into the Nile. And the Aswan Dam has been an incredible disaster. The Egyptians should send a copy of Isaiah 19 to their Russian engineers. The end of chapter 19 predicts a revival that will come to Egypt in the last days. They'll cry out to the God of the Hebrews and he will send them a savior. The Egyptians will know and worship Jesus and he'll bring healing to their land. In chapter 20, Isaiah delivers a unique sermon. Now, perhaps you have heard in the past sermons on nudity, but this was a nude sermon. The Lord tells Isaiah in verses 2 through 4, Go and remove the sackcloth from your body and take your sandals off your feet. And he did so, walking naked and barefoot. Then the Lord said, Just as my servant Isaiah has walked naked and barefoot three years for a sign and a wonder against Egypt and Ethiopia, so shall the king of Assyria lead away the Egyptians as prisoners and the Ethiopians as captives, young and old, naked and barefoot, with their buttocks uncovered to the shame of Egypt. I hope the Lord never asks me to preach that sermon. I'm sure you hope the Lord never asked me to preach that sermon. Now, often the prophets would act out their messages, sometimes in bizarre fashion. They would preach what we could call living parables. You remember Ezekiel laid on his side. Hosea married a prostitute. Paul bound himself with a belt. There are other examples. Here, Isaiah walked naked for three years to communicate the bare facts to the Egyptians and to the Ethiopians 
that they were going to be judged, that the Assyrians were going to come and were going to lead them away captive. They were going to be ravaged. They were going to be devastated. They were going to be led off into slavery naked. It was all because of their sin and their idolatry. Isaiah 21 again addresses the fall of Babylon. In verse 2, Isaiah calls for the Medes to lay siege to the city. In verse 9, a chariot arrives with the news, Babylon has fallen, has fallen, and all the carved images of her gods he has broken to the ground. Remember, Isaiah's prophecy came 200 years before the Medes and Persians conquered Babylon. Chapter 22 is prefaced, the burden against the valley of vision. You see, the nations around Judah have fallen to the Assyrians, but now the invaders have turned on Jerusalem herself, and the city is under siege. The people need to repent and trust God, but that's not what happens. They rely on their own ingenuity. They gather together their armor. They refortify the breaches in their walls. They build water reservoirs to withstand a siege. Some of the people even embrace a fatalistic outlook. Sort of a don't care attitude, a whatever man type of attitude. They say in verse 13, let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. Who cares anyway? And their sin is summed up in verse 11. You did not look to its maker. When you look to God, you have to care. When you put your eyes on Jesus, you have to be concerned. You can't ignore. Apathy cannot exist. You realize that life is important. Choices are serious. The last half of chapter 22 is God's judgment on a Jerusalem official. In his pride, a man named Shebna builds a mausoleum on his burial plot And his action implies that his role in the Israeli government will be permanent, that he'll die a man of honor. But that's not the case. He will be taken into exile, and he will be replaced by a fellow named Eliakim. Verse 22 and 23 says of Eliakim, The key of the house of David I will lay on his shoulder, so he shall open and no one shall shut, and he shall shut and no one shall open. In other words, Eliakim will do the king's business and carry on the king's authority. Now, you remember in Revelation chapter 3, verse 7, this verse is quoted in reference to our Lord Jesus. For he likewise has the authority of a king. The eternal king, the king of kings, is our Lord Jesus. Verse 23 also speaks of Jesus I will fasten him as a peg in a secure place, and he will become a glorious throne to his father's house. The peg is a tent peg, a stake that holds down the whole tent so it doesn't blow away in a stiff wind. And likewise, the longevity of Israel is based on the faithfulness of Jesus. He is the tent peg who sees to it that Israel endures the winds of persecution. Jesus is our tent peg. Fasten your life to Him and you won't blow away in the storm. He'll steady you. He'll ground you. He'll bring security to your life. Verse 25 speaks of the cross of Christ. It says of the tent peg, In that day, the peg that is fastened in the secure place will be removed and be cut down and fall and the burden that was on it will be cut off. You see, our sin was the burden laid on Jesus. And when he died on the cross, our sin was cut off. Here are two questions for you tonight. Are you fastened by the tent peg? And has your sin been fastened to the tent peg? Isaiah 23 is God's burden against Tyre. Not Firestone or Goodyear, but the city of Tyre, a Phoenician city 15 miles north of Israel on the Lebanese coast. Now, according to verse 13, the Assyrians will attack the city of Tyre. And the nations approaching her by ship will witness her destruction from the sea. Chapters 24 through 27 are known as the Little Apocalypse 
The judgments in these chapters are more global in scope and they parallel with the book of Revelation. Isaiah 24 verse 1 sets the tone, Behold, the Lord makes the earth empty and makes it waste, distorts its surface and scatters abroad its inhabitants. I believe these four chapters speak of what the New Testament calls the Great Tribulation. The seven-year period before the coming of Christ in which God will judge this wicked world. Verses 19 and 20 of chapter 24 speak of cataclysmic upheavals that will take place in nature during this time. The earth is violently broken, Isaiah says. The earth is split open. The earth is shaken exceedingly. The earth shall reel to and fro like a drunkard and shall totter like a hut. If you look at the moon, you will find evidence that our solar system is not a peaceful place. It is a very violent place. Look at the lunar surface and what do you see? There are thousands of potholes, of craters, where the moon has been struck by comets and meteorites and asteroids and bolides. We even have meteorites here, meteorite craters here on the earth. Proof that we too have taken hits from cosmic rocks. What if at some point in the future, God sends a larger one? The earth will reel to and fro like a drunkard. It'll totter like a hut. The earth will be split open. The earth will be shaken. I believe the earth is no stranger to global upheavals. Noah's flood, the long day of Joshua. What astronomical catastrophes may have helped to cause those events? It's interesting, all ancient civilizations used to have a 360-day year. Each month was exactly 30 days. Apparently, the earth hasn't always had a wobble. What kind of global catastrophe knocked our planet off its former axis? Its, its axis. <laughs> you know, it's all interesting speculation. I believe, though, that events have taken place in the past that will foreshadow some cataclysmic events in the future that will literally fulfill these prophecies of Isaiah. Chapter 25 paints a picture of when Jesus returns. Verse 8 says, He will swallow up death forever, and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces. The rebuke of His people will He will take away from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. And this is why we say, Come quickly, Lord Jesus. What a beautiful prophecy. Isaiah 26 begins, In that day this song will be sung in the land of Judah. And this chapter is the song of praise that the Jews will sing when Jesus reigns in Israel. The chapter ends with an incredible flurry. Verse 19 is a prediction of the resurrection of the dead. Your dead shall live, Isaiah says. Together with my dead body they shall arise. In other words, in Christ. You know, we will share in His resurrection. Verse 19 sounds a lot like Romans 6 verse 5. Remember that verse, if we have been united together in the likeness of His death, certainly we also shall be in the likeness of His resurrection. After speaking of our resurrection, look at what Isaiah says in verses 20 and 21. It sounds amazingly like the rapture. Come, my people, enter your chambers and shut your doors behind you. Hide yourself, as it were, for a little moment, until the indignation is past. For behold, the Lord comes out of His place to punish the inhabitants of the earth for their iniquity. What a provocative passage. God's people are taken into His chambers and the doors are shut behind, locking in the bride and groom while God goes about punishing the wicked here on the earth. I believe this is an Old Testament description of the pre-tribulational rapture of the church. You didn't know that was in the Old Testament, did you? Here in Isaiah chapter 26. Guys, before God's judgment comes down, the church is going to go up. 
I'm not looking for judgment. I'm looking for Jesus. Isaiah 27 verse 1 tells us, In that day the Lord with His severe sword, great and strong, will punish Leviathan, the fleeing serpent, Leviathan, that twisted serpent, and He will slay the reptile that is in the sea. In Revelation, John uses Isaiah's imagery for Satan. John calls him a dragon. Here, Isaiah refers to him as a sea serpent. Remember in the Garden of Eden, he appeared to Adam and Eve as a serpent. Leviathan is that serpent, Satan, who has tried to counter God at every turn. And when Jesus returns, he will use God's sword and he will punish Satan with it for the evil he's caused. Chapter 27 describes God's preservation of Israel and their return to the land that he's promised them. Verse 6 tells us, Those who come, he shall cause to take root in Jacob. Israel shall blossom and bud and fill the face of the world with fruit. Understand, Israel today is about the size of the state of New Jersey. That's one-seventh the size of the state of Georgia. And yet, Israel is the world's third largest producer of citrus fruit. Isaiah's prophecy is being fulfilled before our very eyes. This little tiny country, Israel, today is filling the face of the world with fruit. Verse 13 envisions the final exodus when Jews all over the world will return to Judah, to Jerusalem. Of the 16 million Jews who are alive today, understand only 4 million live in Israel. There are more Jews who live in New York City than in Jerusalem. When Jesus returns to the earth and God establishes His kingdom, Jews the world over will flock and return to Israel. In chapter 28, Ephraim, or the northern kingdom of Israel, is described as a nation of drunkards. Alcohol, intoxicating drink, Isaiah calls it, is her downfall. Verse 1 says, her glorious beauty is a fading flower. In other words, because of alcohol, her best days are over. They're shot. Notice even her priests and her prophets spend most of their time in a drunken stupor. And notice God's beef in verse 9. He says, whom will he teach knowledge? You know, if everyone is sauced up, if everyone's under the influence of alcohol, no one is sober enough to hear God speak and understand God's ways. The nation is in a dangerous and vulnerable situation when the priests, when the prophets are all drunk. He's trying to tell us, live under the influence of distilled spirits and we will surely miss out on the Holy Spirit. Isaiah 28 verse 10 teaches us that a knowledge of God requires careful study and application of His Word. Guys, there are no shortcuts to spiritual growth but the study of Scripture. You've come tonight. You've set aside this time. Going through Isaiah, this isn't an easy task. This is hard. This is tough. It requires some concentration. You've got to work at it. And you're here because you understand the importance of the study of the Scriptures. There are no shortcuts to spiritual growth. Romans 10 verse 17 tells us, Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. If you want to build up your faith, you've got to stay in God's Word. You know the difference between strong and weak tea? There's one difference. It's the length of time the tea leaves stay in the water. And likewise, the difference between a strong faith and a weak faith is the length of time that believer stays and spends in the Word of God. Verse 10 tells us how the Bible should be studied. For precept must be upon precept. Precept upon precept. Line upon line. Line upon line. Here a little. There a little. This is why Bible study demands a clear, unclouded mind. A diligent effort. It has to be looked at in context. A word, a line, a precept at a time. Notice Isaiah's comment. Here a little, there a little. 
Have you noticed that the Bible is not arranged in neat little headings and in specific topics? Have you noticed that? You know, you can't turn to a particular chapter that deals just with salvation or to a particular book that deals specifically with the rapture of the church. It's not organized that way. All the vital doctrines of the church are spread out and they're sprinkled throughout the whole book. Here a little, there a little. Chuck Missler has an interesting theory as to why this is so. He says that the Bible is a wartime message system. When an army sends a radio communique to the front lines, it anticipates hostile jamming. And so it spreads the message out over the entire bandwidth of the radio so that if a portion of the message is intercepted, the rest of the message will still get through. He compares this to Scripture. If God clumped all of the salvation passages together and part of the Bible was neglected, maybe that was the particular part of the Bible that that you neglected, then you would be without the plan of salvation. It would be tragic. That's why God has spread out all of the key doctrines from cover to cover throughout the whole book, here a little, there a little. That means you can pick up the Bible in any place. And if you look hard enough, you'll discern all you really need to know from that particular portion. The Bible is so intricately woven together. It is certainly a unique book. Because of Israel's drunkenness, she fails to apply herself to God's word. And that's why a terrible judgment is on the horizon. Isaiah warns them in verse 11, For with stammering lips and another tongue, he will speak to this people. In other words, a foreign army speaking a foreign language will come and judge Israel. Verse 15 speaks of Israel's covenant with death. Its immediate fulfillment was her protection treaty with Assyria. She sort of bought Assyria's protection, but that gave Assyria an opportunity to come and attack her. Ultimately, though, this covenant with death looks to the agreement that Israel will make with the Antichrist that will mark the beginning of the Great Tribulation. Verse 18 and 19, or verse 18, and then again in Daniel chapter 9, tell us that halfway through this final seven-year period, the covenant that Israel makes with the Antichrist will be broken. And after that, he'll seek to destroy the Jews. This is the covenant of death spoken of here by Isaiah. And this is why Israel and all God's people need to learn to trust in Him. Don't trust in man. Man will let you down. Man will disappoint you. Trust in God. Verse 16 says, Therefore thus says the Lord God, Behold, I lay in Zion a stone for a foundation, a tried stone, a precious cornerstone, a sure foundation. Throughout the Scriptures, the stone or the rock is an idiom for the Messiah, Jesus Christ. Jesus is the strong rock on which we all can lean. Isaiah 29 is a warning or woe to Ariel, which means lion. It was another name for the city of Jerusalem. And this chapter warns of coming sieges. In 701 B.C., the Assyrians surrounded Jerusalem. In 586 B.C., it was the Babylonians. In 70 A.D., the Romans besieged the city of Jerusalem. But chapter 29 describes an attack from a multitude of nations. And this prophecy, again, seems to point to the future. In the last days, guys, the battle will be over Jerusalem. And that's why what's happening today in Israel is so exciting. Because what has become the focus? You know, it's no longer, you know, the Jericho. It's no longer Hebron. It's no longer these different Palestinian areas. It's Jerusalem, that's the focus. That's the piece of the pie everybody wants. And one day the nations of the world will come up against Jerusalem. But here's an irony. While judgment comes against Judah, God will open her eyes to spiritual truth. A revival will take place simultaneous with the judgment. People who were blind to God's truth will suddenly have their eyes open. They'll understand. And a humble Israel will finally see. I believe this is what will happen to the Jews in the Great Tribulation. 
that as the world is being punished, Israel will be purified. Their eyes will be open. They'll be receptive to the truth of the gospel. Chapter 30 is God's rebuke of King Hezekiah. You see, with the Assyrians bowing, bearing down on him from the north, Hezekiah turned to Egypt in the south for protection. And verse 1 says, Woe to the rebellious children who take counsel, but not of me. See, rather than trust the Lord, they turn to the Egyptians. And here's what Judah learned from their mistake. Verse 18, Blessed are all those who wait for him. See, if they had just waited on the Lord, the Lord would have delivered them. He did deliver them. They didn't need to go down and make a treaty with the Egyptians. So often, we we jump to extremes. We start doing this, trying that, you know, rather than just waiting. Rather than just being patient and trusting God. It's been said, patience is letting your motor idle when you feel like peeling out. But oh, how we need patience. Understand, God's rich, God's wristwatch is set to His time, not yours. Understand it. Be patient. Trust Him. He makes all things beautiful in His time. In verse 21, God promises Israel that in the midst of her adversity, Your ears shall hear a word behind you saying, This is the way. Walk in it. God will not abandon her. You know, if Israel trusts Him, God will stay with Israel. In fact, the Spirit will remind them of the truth they've been taught. The Spirit will whisper in their ear. The Spirit will say, Go here. The Spirit will say, Go there. God will guide them if they'll trust Him. Here's the lesson for us. Don't give up. Be patient. Trust the Lord. In His timing, the Holy Spirit will come and He will whisper words of guidance into your ears as well. The Mideast peace negotiators need to read Isaiah 31 verse 4. It says, So the Lord of hosts will come down to fight for Mount Zion and for its hill. (laughs) When the nations of the world attack Jerusalem, and specifically the hill or the temple mount, boy, will they be in for a surprise. Because Jesus himself will defend the holy city. Chapter 32 describes how life will be different when King Jesus reigns in righteousness. Folks will understand truth. The Spirit will be poured out. Justice will dwell in the land. The people will live in peace and security. What a day that will be. God's complaint in the chapter is in verse 9. He says, Rise up, you women who are at ease. Hear my voice, you complacent daughters. Give ear to my speech. Apathy, complacency is a real problem. It's been said the number one problem today is complacency, but who really cares? I heard someone say of his church, 10% of the people won't change, 10% of the people resist change, and 80% of the people just sit there. And the crowd that just sits there might be the worst. You care about what God cares about? Are you concerned with what concerns God? Let's not be apathetic. Let's not be complacent. Let's be vigilant and intense in our commitment to God. Isaiah 33 describes God's judgment on Israel's invaders, both then and yet to come. Verse 3 says, When you lift yourself up, the nations shall be scattered. Chapters 34 and 35 go way beyond the scope of any local conflict. Here the prophet looks through the immediate to the future and the final days of man. Famous Old Testament scholars Kiel and Delich said this about these chapters. We feel that Isaiah is carried away from the stage of history and is transported into the midst of the last things. He has broken away from his own time and the end of all things has become more and more his home. Wow. Chapter 34 focuses on the final battle, the battle for Jerusalem. 
or what is often called the Battle of Armageddon. Chapter 35 describes the kingdom age that Jesus will set up on planet Earth after the conclusion of that final battle. Notice the broad broad scope of chapter 34. Look at verse 2. It tells us that the whole world is a player. The indignation of the Lord is against all nations. Verse 4 implies that both heaven and earth are the battlefield. The heavens will be rolled up like a scroll. Whatever happens during these last days, the planet earth will literally be rocked off its foundations. The host of heaven, we're told, or astronomical projectiles, meteorites, comets, bolides, cosmic rocks of different kinds will fall from the heavens. Verse 4 says they'll pelt the earth like leaves falling from the vine. This chapter prompted Vance Havner to once say, the day is coming when the most expensive piece of real estate on the planet will be a hole in the ground. Revelation says that men will hide themselves in the caves and in the holes. Notice too, verse 5 says that blood will be shed in Basra and Edom. Remember, that's the region down around the Dead Sea. Understand, the staging area for the Battle of Jerusalem will be the Valley of Megiddo, but the fighting will stretch out as far south as Basra. Remember, too, that's where the Jews have escaped and are hiding from the Antichrist in the Great Tribulation. They'll be held up in Basra or Petra, and that's where Jesus will finish slaughtering the wicked. In the aftermath of God's final judgment, the earth will become desolate. But verse 1 makes a wonderful promise. The desert shall rejoice and blossom as the rose. Verse 1 of chapter 35. But that's just the beginning. Look on at the wonderful promises that follow. You think Jesus did miracles during his first coming. There'll be nothing compared to the miracles he'll do at his second coming. Verse 5 says, he'll open blind eyes, deaf ears. Verse 6, the lame shall leap like a deer. The land will be restored. Israel will be regathered. The thousand years Jesus reigns the earth will be a millennium of miracles. Isaiah chapter 36 and 30 through 39 is a parenthetical passage that was inserted into the prophecy by Isaiah to explain how God fulfilled his promise to Judah and delivered them from the Assyrian invasion. It parallels almost exactly 2 Kings chapters 18 through 20. In chapter 36, Isaiah describes the Assyrians' threat. In chapter 37, he recounts King Hezekiah's prayer, Isaiah's own assuring prophecy. God's deliverance is described in chapter 37, verse 36. It was an important night. Then the angel of the Lord went out and killed in the camp of the Assyrians 185,000. And when people arose early in the morning, there were the corpses all dead. So Sennacherib, king of Assyria, departed and went away, returned home, and remained at Nineveh. The victory was won. Emmanuel fought for Judah. Chapter 38 tells us about Hezekiah's sickness, his impending death, his prayer, his healing, the miraculous sign that God used to confirm his promise. And then, of course, the blunder that he made when he showed off his treasure to a group of Babylonians who were acting as spies and who went back to Babylon and put the bug in the ear, eventually, of King Nebuchadnezzar who came back after those treasures a hundred years later. When you go home tonight, read over these last chapters. As is the case with all the Bible, they are rich in insight. And you'll be blessed. Father, thank you for your love for us. Thank you for all your many blessings. But the one particularly we hold in esteem tonight is your infallible, inerrant, incomparable word. And we consider it a privilege tonight to have come together to study it. Help us continue 
line upon line, precept upon precept, here a little, there a little, as our faith grows and as you continue to work in and through us. We love you, Lord, and we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.